Hey guys, so I just got off a, off of a really good call with Miles Brazil, who is a gun strength and conditioning coach from the United States in America. So essentially on this podcast, we go into bat for strength training, for athletic preparation of off-road motocross races, and essentially just athletes in general. Um, Miles and I both believe that strength training, using full ranges of motion, heavy loads, should be in every off-road and motocross athletes program. If they're not, I'd, I'd almost go as far to say not only will it be inadequate, it's actually an irresponsible approach that's going to most likely lead to the athlete becoming broken. So this isn't a sales pitch for Miles or my own services. There's plenty of good strength and conditioning coaches out there and we touch on that at the end of the podcast. I'm more than happy to refer you to a really good coach in our network who could teach you how to get strong in person. Athletic prep for our sport, it's I feel like it's grossly misunderstood because not only is our sport so young compared to most other sports out there, the preparation the average person puts in is absolutely minuscule compared to almost any other sport out there. So Miles does a great job of sharing some facts, some science, and just some good old logic around this in the podcast. So I'm sure you're gonna love it. There's plenty of awesome value in here. If you do love it, it'd mean the world to me if you could share it. Um, if you got any feedback, shoot it through to me. Like I'm always open to hearing feedback, um, good and bad. Um, if you've got anything like that, shoot it through. Otherwise, hope you enjoy the podcast and we will see you on the next one. Bye for now. Awesome. So today we've got Miles Brazil from Regulus Fit in the USA on the podcast. How's it going, man? Going great, man. How are you? Very good. Thank you. It's good to finally catch up. We've had a bit of yeah. a, a DM relationship going on Instagram for a little while now. Yeah, I think like a darn near a year of, uh, of, of internet uh a DM friendship. So happy to actually finally talk to you face to face. Sorry if my accent's a little too much. <laughs> I can understand you so far. So that's cool. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so man, for those, for those of the listeners who don't know who you are, like obviously we've only chatted via Instagram, so I don't know a whole lot about you, but tell the listeners, like, I guess, what you do over there with your business with Regulus Fit. And I guess like I always like to kind of hear about how people, how people got there, like what led you to becoming a, a coach and starting that business up. Yeah. Um, so we are in, uh, or I'm based out of Reno, Nevada. So uh, West coast U S um, and I actually ended up uh, in strength conditioning kind of, I don't want to say accidentally, but unintentionally I, I didn't set out to become a professional strength coach, um, but that's kind of where I landed. So um, my background academically is um, is in philosophy. And so um, studied philosophy and thought that I wanted to do the whole uh, the Wall Street finance thing um, and was just bored out of my gourd and just loved, uh, loved training and 
so I kind of jumped in at that point and, and opened a facility. Um, and that was, you know, almost six years ago or so. And, and now we've got uh, a couple different pretty awesome facilities here in, in this area, um, handful of, of programs service a variety of different clients across a variety of different sports from cyclists to runners, uh, to general population. We run, um, across both locations, almost 80 group sessions, semi-private group sessions a week. And then we have 11 coaches that are all running, uh, their own private loads as well. So, um, I think you and I kind of connected just because of my, um, semi-involvement with the motorsports world and some of the clients that I've had, uh, both presently and in the past that are in your specific niche, but, um, I don't necessarily consider myself a, um, an off-road coach or, a, or a moto specific coach by any means, but it's a, it's an area of performance that I'm deeply passionate about. I grew up, uh, racing motorcycles. My, my real athletic background was in Alpine ski racing, but was kind of an all around, I guess, jock of sorts. I played, you know, quarterback on my, on my high school football team. I ended up leaving, uh, leaving the team sports side to pursue, uh, Alpine ski racing. So I was a, a speed skier between super G and downhill, my main disciplines, and then end, ended up leaving from that and, uh, trying to start a real life and got married and started powerlifting competitively. Um, now I'm, I'm much more uh, geared as an endurance athlete. So, um, quite a bit of running in my present, uh, in my present athletic interests, but, um, Regulus has been a conduit, I guess, in the sense of, of access to a variety of different sports that I personally have not, um, have not dabbled in, but off-road racing and, and, uh, motorcycle racing are, is one of those that I actually have. So I thoroughly enjoy it. I think that I probably have spent, um, more time thinking about the sport of, of motocross than, uh, the other coaches, my business would, would like to hear about just because they get tired of, of hearing me talk about being on the bike or the applications of, uh, of what we do here uh, to the bike, or even just our involvement in, in the sport locally, they probably get a little sick of it, but I just can't get enough of it. So love being on the bike, love riding, love, uh, love training guys on the bike. So, uh, yeah, that's a little bit about us and, and kind of how I landed where I did. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So you still do get out on the bike a fair bit yourself by the look of it too. Yeah. Um, it, I'd say like over the last, uh, pre COVID, I was probably on the bike two or three days a week. Um, riding quite a bit and I have, I've got one facility that's in the, in the North part of, of, uh, Reno. And for anyone that's not familiar with Nevada, um, Reno, Nevada is not like Las Vegas. We're like, like eight and a half hours apart. Um, and so we're like in this high desert terrain, like right now it's 28 degrees and snowy outside, but we have inside of this facility. It's pretty cool. Like guys will just show up. We'll have, you know, eight, 10 bikes lined up inside, open the bay doors. And we're just, we can peel right out to, uh, to, uh, public land and, and ride from here. So we've got like a variety of really cool test loops and things. Not, not as cool as the wooded stuff that I see you guys get to ride, but sagebrush and, um, sand washes and, and big mountains. So it's, it's pretty cool, but post COVID, um, there's been obviously just some, I guess, semi-strategic shifts in the business. And that has required my boots to be on the ground quite a bit more. So with the kids not being in school, 
Um, we have a, a sports performance program specifically geared towards kids. Um, we call it the Speed Lab, and that's in our in our South Reno facility. That has uh, been something that's really started to to move and shake a little bit, and that's required quite a bit more time and attention. So not as much bike time as I would have liked through the summer. Plus, we had our our fourth baby, and that kept me pretty busy too. So I've got four kids, um, but yeah, I I do like to get out and. Um, it's kind of the benefit as I see you do it too. I, I like to get out and be with the guys that I coach as often as I can, if they're local. Um, there's it, it's yeah, for me, it's kind of an excuse to just get to go chase fast guys around, but it is a blast. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Fun, good fun, man. It sounds like you got your hands full over there for sure. A lot. Yeah. We got a lot going on. <laughs> so, and even we're going like, to talk about a lot today too. We are hundred percent. We're going to get right into that. But even like just to, you mentioned there you're into endurance running, just when you say endurance running, just share that with the listeners because you're talking about some pretty serious endurance running. Like you just did a 50K, I'm pretty sure, and you're in training for, is it a 50 mile, which I'm pretty sure that's like 80K for us. So yeah, like a double marathon. Roughly that. Pretty much, pretty much two marathons. Um, Yeah, I started going for an afternoon jog. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it started as an afternoon jog. Um, yeah. So my, uh, even as a, as a, as a strength athlete, um, initially I always uh, saw the benefit of just staying well-rounded and trying to kind of touch, uh, all the systems as much as I could. So, um, even as like a power lifter, I was never like a, you know, a fat sloppy power lifter, um, which also means I wasn't a super strong power lifter, but, um, yeah, I, I took up a bet actually from a, a coach um, a couple of years ago who didn't think that um, I could run like just a traditional mixed modality program and, and go out and run a marathon in a respectable time. And so I signed up for one like two weeks later and, and <laughs> ran it and got kind of hooked. And so since then, I think I've baited like almost all of my friends into into running or becoming um runners in some respects. I, I, I used to do quite a bit more cycling than I do now. Um, just now it's just, I'm actually trying to train and, and be a decent athlete myself. So, um, the marathon distance is fun, but the trail running, the trail running world and the trail running community is, is very cool. So, um, I've kind of jumped into that with both feet and have been racing and running the last couple of years. So I've got a a 50 mile race coming up here at the 50 K distance has been something we've done. And that's a ton of fun, but, a 50 mile is like literally you finish the 50 K and you have to turn around and go do a full marathon afterwards. So the goal will be finish, finish 50. Um, and then in the next year, um, in 2021, a hundred miles and a, and a full Ironman. So those are the two things on the radar for the next year. Savage man. Yeah, it's good. (laughs) Got to keep, got to keep the kids honest. (laughs) I like it. I like it. So, I guess we want, we definitely want to get into some stuff here and I guess bust a few myths around athletic preparation for, for off-road and, and moto athletes. But like you kind of touched on it before, you obviously coach, you, say, you said you coach a very broad range of athletes through your facilities. Um, but when we think of the role of the coach, you're, I guess, improving the qualities that each athlete needs to perform in their specific sport. So, of course, that's going to vary to an extent depending on what they're actually doing. But how do you, I guess, approach that when you say 
have to prepare one of your cyclists compared to moto dude or someone like yourself that's getting into a 50 mile endurance run yeah um man i mean we could we could uh go a couple different ways with this there's there's kind of a, a general underlying philosophy i guess of um of how we train which is um in a sense we we would employ and i think we should probably do a a full a full breakdown of this at some point or a full episode on this we we employ somewhat of a of a bridge limiter style model um that is known here in the states but um maybe not super well known down there um but i'd say the most important piece of what we do is is athlete centric so you are going to address the needs of, of each athlete um, individually based on the athlete themselves, not necessarily based on the modality that they compete in. And I think the, the misconception at times is, oh, this person's a cyclist, therefore their cycling training needs to look like X, or this person's a runner and their running training needs to look like X, or a, you know, a motocross racer just because it's motocross needs to look this way. Um, whereas if you were to walk into like a really high level strength conditioning program, at say a really, you know, prestigious university in the, in the States here, you would, um, you know, you would see the, the soccer, like football players doing their thing. You would see the American football players doing their thing. You would see high level track athletes doing their thing. And a lot of them would be operating with, uh, with similar protocols, I guess, um, even though they, they may look and appear a little bit different, you may not be able to distinguish what the sport is that they're doing um, based on how you're watching them train because a smart strength coach is going to address the low-hanging fruit of the needs of the athlete, find out what necessarily the, the limiter is that's preventing them from reaching the level of performance that they're trying to achieve, and then addressing and attacking that directly. Um, so for, for us, we're, we're very much concerned with the need of the individual and, and how do we get the most out of them um, physically, uh, as, as an athlete, as a performer, um, motocross for some reason seems to be like, if you were to walk into a normal gym, you could probably spot what's going on with the motocross guy. Cause he's probably trying to stand on a pair of foot pegs on a spring and hold onto a pair of handlebars while he's flopping around on a rowing machine. Um, so that, that doesn't seem to, to be a thing in very many other places in the, um, in the upper spheres of strength and conditioning. No, correct. And I guess that's what I was sort of alluding at, but um, we're like, I guess that's like you just noted, like we see that motocross athletes quite often they're training on some sort of unstable surface and they're doing <laughs> enough cycling to rival Lance Armstrong um, in a lot of cases. So uh, where we, at least from what I see, I guess, on the outside, of course, people don't share on social media everything they do. But what we see is at the top level, there's not a whole lot of strength work or quality strength work going on, um, yeah. at least from what they're sharing. So I guess where, where do you think strength plays a role for the motocross or off-road athlete? Well, um, <laughs> so I want to, I guess, preface by saying that, um, I mean, maybe let's, let's talk just briefly about the sport itself that I think, uh, I think is important for people to understand. And this is just from, from my, um, my observations of the industry as a whole, my observations, um, of my own clients as well. And the people that I've worked with, um, and the sport as a whole. So if, if we look at, 
uh, at a motocross or an off-road racer. Um, they're phys physiologically, they're, they're fairly similar kind of across the board. You usually see kind of the same, the same structures, same build, same sizes. Um, and if you were to take those, the, even the, the top level, uh, riders and racers with the exception of like a very few, um, of them almost none of them. And I, and I want to say this carefully and, and know that people or hopefully people know, I don't mean it disrespectfully at all. Um, none of them would be elite athletes in any other sphere of sport. Um, and I say it just because the word like elite is thrown around and, and people assume because, a you know, a high level motocross racer is doing a certain, a certain thing. That's like an elite thing. Um, but almost almost none of them would, would qualify or meet the criteria of what I think I would look at as, as a high level or an elite athlete, physiologically speaking, across the, the broader spectrum of when we're dealing with humans is, as meat machines. Um, I mean, you may find a guy uh, in the higher levels of the sport who could run you know, a low five-minute mile or a mid-five-minute mile and um, we have a mutual, a mutual friend in, in Evan who has said at times like, that we look at that and we're like, wow, man, that's fast. But in the States, that's like a, like a mid pack junior varsity girl in high school. Um, it's not, not something to, to really wow over, um, you know, or they, they don't have the ability to even back squat their body weight for consecutive repetitions. And we look at that as somebody who, um, you know, we would look for that in, in a, like a, a fairly well-aged, client who's just looking to improve the quality of their life, let alone handle a, you know, several hundred pound machine for, for hours on end. So yeah. in the sphere of riding motorcycles, um, it, and we look at their physical attributes, the abilities they possess, they don't even register on the chart of what we would consider as elite, uh, when we're thinking about actually training athletes. So, um, that's just the, just the, I kind, kind of think the hard truth, but the implications of that is um, when we start working with this population, you're dealing with a, a largely untrained population. Um, even though you may get on a bike and ride the bike quite a bit, when we're talking about just the, the actual physical nature of your development as an athlete, you're largely untrained. Um, and the great thing about that for, you know, for people who are participants in the sport is that you have a lot of opportunity to make a lot of significant improvement improvement with very, very little effort. Yeah. And that that's like one of the one of I think the the most important things for people to recognize is just because somebody is doing something that's moving the needle a little bit doesn't mean it's actually right or optimal. Um, so doing something when you're, when you're largely untrained is better than doing absolutely nothing, which is where I think a lot of the, um, and we can, we can hop into some research and talk a little bit about the, uh, the stability stuff, just cause I, that's something I'm, I'm oddly passionate about. Um, that's something that comes up time and time again in, in that literature is the nature of, uh, what's the real training, training age and training maturity and status of the, of the athlete that's being examined. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're 100% right there, man. You hit the nail on the head. Like, it's like we don't want to sound like we're telling people they're doing it the wrong way or our way is better or anything like that. But you're totally right. Like, if they're at that level of the sport, 
and they can't back squat their own body weight. Like that's like, there's so much low hanging fruit there that potentially could take them to a whole other level in the sport with, like you say, not, it's, it's not that hard to achieve that level of strength in a short amount of time per week. So totally, it's like, that's exciting for me. Like, and I'm sure that an athlete would, would get excited about that too. If you said, okay, let's do two hours of, of this type of training a week and you're going to go from here to here. That's like a pretty positive thing. Yeah, uh, absolutely, man. Um, and it's part, part of the, is especially like living in the age of Instagram, I can't tell you how many times a week people send me posts of just the, the absurd things that I, that I see people doing. Um, this week, the, the popular one that everyone was sending to me was a, a guy laying, laying backwards on a GHD machine, planking and doing a bench press with, uh, with no, no structure support behind the back or, um, somebody doing, uh, a, with a barbell and, and plate weight loaded onto the bar doing, you know, plyo style box jumps up with, with weight on the spine. It's cause it is kind of gimmicky and looks cool. And unfortunately, um, what we see in the, in the motocross world is trainers who trainers, coaches. Um, so unfortunately in this profession, the barrier to entry is really low and it's easy for somebody to, um, kind of hop in and, and just throw on a hat and say, this is what I do. And, and I'm a pro and, um, you know, take my advice because I've, you know, I've done something in the past. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, um, the folks that are writing prescriptive exercise, uh, for athletes in this sport are guys that were cyclists. And so they are, uh, their experience is, is narrowed to a single modality, to a sport that's already um, significantly under, underserviced uh, with quality strength coaching and take those same protocols because it's got two wheels and pump it over to guys on motorcycles because they're riding something with two wheels. Um, I think even if you, even if you read, um, and I, I mean, we could, this is something we can jump on as well, but if you read some of the stuff that like Alden has put out in the past is he'll say, um, he'll be like, yeah, you know, I, I, I like cycling for my guys because it mimics the motorcycle. It's got two wheels and handlebars. Like a bike weighs 15 pounds on the heavy end for the bikes that these guys are riding and it's self-propelled. Um, is there's, there's obviously so much wrong with that. We could, we could go a lot of different ways, but um, what ends up happening is you, you see, uh, you see a rider doing something, standing on a BOSU ball, flopping some ropes around, um, you know, standing on a, on a unstable dome and trying to reach down and pick up a cone or whatever it may be. And you say, Oh, that guy's doing that on Instagram. And, and I should probably be doing that. An athlete says that, but I also fear that, um, the coaches in our space have, have such a, um, a basic understanding of what's really going on from like a, an NASM search or something where, uh, they see that same stuff and say, ah, that's creative. That'll get the attention of, of somebody that will make my clients think that I'm, you know, I'm coming up with stuff that they couldn't do on their own. 
And then you end up with this cycle of, uh, of dependence on a coach to show you how to do stuff that you think is magical. Um, when in reality, you're not actually producing any meaningful change in your body. That's going to get you what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. hundred percent. Let, let's get into that. Let's get into the unstable surface thing. Cause it is a, it's a, it's a massive one. I see it all the time. I'm sure you have two people posting that they're, they're on a BOSU ball or an Indo board or something doing a overhead kettlebell press to like, I see it to fire up all the moto muscles. Like, Let's talk about that. Let's blow that apart first off. Like, firstly, training, when we're not trying to replicate what we're doing on the bike anyway to begin with. Um, but let's delve into that because you obviously understand the science a lot more than most people on why unstable surface training is not the best thing for us to go, the best path to go down. Yeah. Um, so... I think there's a, a couple ground rules when when talking about this topic, and it's it's one that understanding is we're talking about performance coaching and developing athletes. We are not talking about rehabilitation at all, and we are not talking about training children fresh out of the womb, learning how to stand up and walk. Um, the the rehabilitative application is is for a different conversation um but the the assumption that i think coaches make is that if an athlete practices balancing when they're lifting weights this is what you're talking about firing etc um that the result will be an increase in strength and better balance on on whether it's the playing field or the bike or whatever um yeah. And I, so that the ground rule that I think needs to kind of be understood is like uh, st stability and instability exists on this spectrum of sorts where I don't care what kind of exercise you're doing, you are, you're fighting for balance through, through every single movement. But it's we have to ask about the the efficacy of of each one of those movements. So whether I'm at, and I don't know if this probably is an application for you. So like we coach a bunch of like really solid high school level athletes um, in our in our speed lab program, kids that can run you know mid four second forty yard dashes, which in in American football is kind of like a main a main performance metric. That and bench press and vertical jump and broad jump. Um, and if you've ever watched like a 16 or 17 year old kid lay down on a bench to do bench press for the first time <laughs> and like watched him uh, like try and press, like look at that and tell me that you genuinely think it's stable because he's got two points of contact and he's laying on his back. Like that, that kid might as well be stuck in a bucket of sand with with his hands on a PVC pipe full of, uh, full of goo of some kind. I don't even know. I'm just trying to think of ridiculous things that I've seen. Um, but you apply that to almost any movement, squatting, dumbbell benching, deadlifting, rowing. Um, these, these movements performed in and of themselves are fundamentally unstable depending on the nature of the ability of the athlete. So, I, I want to just recognize that like every single movement, every single exercise kind of exists on, on a spectrum of sorts where, um, 
where we're just kind of asked to manipulate and adjust um, to what degree are, are we going to create or encourage instability and why um, the, I guess talking just a little bit about the research um, a lot of the, the misconceptions around this concept birthed or no say birth that it did birth out of, out of rehabilitation, which is why I said in the beginning that um, we need to differentiate between talking about rehab and talking about strength conditioning. Um, you know, the idea was, you, you put a, uh, you put an EMG on somebody, if there's increased, uh, if there's increased EMG activity and increased co-contraction, there's increased stabilization and we can get more muscles activated. And then if there's more muscles activated, we can get more force production. If there's more force production, there's more power. And then our athletes will improve their ability to balance. And therefore, if we want someone to be able to bench more or squat more or jump higher, then we need to help them move loads under uh, unstable conditions. And that is just not the case. First is, I guess, like an EMG is, is really just a, you know, an indirect measure of, of muscle force. And it's, and it is meant to measure neurological activity during a movement, not necessarily direct muscle tension. So we need tension obviously to create change inside of muscles. So we can, uh, we can see that there's a bunch of activity inside of, of a working muscle. And that's not necessarily indicative of there being any, any meaningful um, change or adaptation that's occurring as a result. And then also, however more explosive or more complicated the movement may be, the less accurate or less useful EMG information will, will really be. So um, the, the application there was that all, all of the the EMG founded research in a sense that says, Hey, we need to, we need to do this on, on, on unstable surfaces was fundamentally rehabilitative. And most of the training, um, occurred with populations that were not the type of population that I think we're talking about or trying to train here. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So yeah, you go, keep going. Yeah. Um, so when, when we survey, the different types of athletes that, that maybe this would apply to is, um, and I'll shoot you some links on, on some different studies. I think it's, I I'll met, I'll mess some names up for sure. At some point in this, um, it's a 2006 or a 2007 study from, uh, from a cat named Cressy on collegiate athletes where, um, the study initially predicted that power output, sprinting, agility, jumping, um, and that uh, lower body dynamic strength um, would significantly improve in unstable environments. And then the test was, um, were stable and unstable. So the, the outcome though of, of the Cressy study was that even though both groups improved, the stable, the, the stable surface group, and this is in collegiate athletes, the stable surface group outperformed the unstable group in every single category. There was not one where the unstable surface produced a better physical outcome in ability for an athlete um, compared to its stable counterpart. So um, it was, I mean, it was a criticism and now a fact truly that unstable training does not allow for the right types of 
loading to create meaningful strength. And that's, that's where I think the kind of the crux of the, the issue is, is you see, um, you see coaches throw largely untrained young people. And this is what, when we're talking about motocross athletes, largely untrained, you ask them to perform a squat or a hinge pattern or, or a vertical press that they already do with a fair amount of instability standing on a flat surface and you create an even more unstable condition for them to lift or perform the exercise and you expect it to perform or create a better outcome is literally the equivalent of having somebody take a rifle and put shots on target, miss the target, and then throw a blindfold on them and say, hit the target again you are going to be further away from the mark that you initially set out to achieve than you were when you at least could shoot with your eyes open. So we've got, um, I mean, we've got athletes that really don't even have the ability to, to produce much force in, in more stable conditions. We hand them unstable conditions and variables and expect that to somehow improve their performance. And, um, it doesn't really happen. You know, there's a, there's a, I had a coach one time or um, chatted with a coach once and we were having a, a similar conversation. He said, you know, I could, uh, I could take an athlete and uh, a sit, like give them a test on the BOSU ball and they would perform that test and I could take the BOSU away and go train them off of the BOSU for six weeks or 10 weeks or whatever it was he said. And then go perform that same test and do even better on that test than before. And the athlete would come back and say, man, I guess I need to spend more time on the BOSU. <laughs> and it, it's, it's, uh, it's puzzling because what it does is it creates, it creates this where we talked about there's this spectrum as far as, as what's stable and unstable and, and how we're talking about movements. I mean, cause in a sense, a, a traditional bilateral back squat is an, is an unstable um, exercise to, to some um, really to all just varies in degree, but you have a, uh, uh, you, you produce this, this wide variety of variables where you don't actually have, any objective measurable progression because the surface is always changing. So you're not actually getting to load an athlete properly um, in terms of weight or volume or intensity or whatever it may be, because the, the only variable is going to be you jacking around these surfaces and giving them different stuff to stand on, um, stand on, lay on, press on, whatever. Um, there's a, there's another study that I think is, was good. It's the, the, it was a uh, Zimkova in 2012, and it was a it was a a single upper body exercise and lower body exercise. It was a bench press and a and a squat, and the power outs outputs on on BOSU balls compared to stable surfaces. And the way that it read in the abstract was that it was literally as simple as just uh, power outputs were profoundly compromised. Um, during resistance training under unstable conditions compared to stable conditions. Um, so you, you look at, you look at the fact that this is what drives a lot of training programs in, in, I mean, your sport, our sport, this sport specifically. Um, and it really just serves, uh, I genuinely believe it serves to, um, 
and I think some of the coaches are, are well intended. I think there's some coaches that are well-intentioned um, and they genuinely think that this is the right way to train. I also think there's coaches that are wildly insecure about their inability to actually uh, build strength in an athlete that's meaningful and um, usable. And so they prescribe crap like this and think that it's doing something because it's different and it's unique and it looks cool. And it's not objectively measurable because the variables are kind of always changing. One week you're standing on a foam roller. The next week you're standing on a BOSU ball. The next week you're going to turn the BOSU ball upside down. Then you're going to do squats with the dumbbells at your sides. And you're going to do half squats on one leg. When in reality, that individual doesn't have the ability to perform a full range of motion back squat with half of their body weight. We should probably start there before we, uh, before we go anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. It's there's like you say, there's so much low hanging fruit with just mastering the basics that we there's really not any need to do anything fancy per se. Um, like you say, when it's not actually going to give us any meaningful improvement. Yeah, it's like I mean, and that's why the I think the shooting analogy works works really well. But it 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 like running or jogging. If an athlete doesn't jog well just basic jogging then a sprint program is not going to improve the jog Mm. and the sprinting will literally be fruitless all you're doing is creating unnecessary um tension and damage realistically um in supportive tissues and um making a more vulnerable athlete in the long run and it's like man unless you've got an athlete and this is where i i and I've had a couple guys that have that have come to me from obviously other training organizations and that are kind of relevant and uh, influential in this sport. Um, and they will they would have been doing um, single leg Bosu ball squats with load applied when they physically cannot perform a full range of motion air squat um, with breathing and bracing mechanics and, and keeping a flat foot on the ground. So it's like, man, let's, let's go back to here before we ever even think about trying to do anything. And it's, and I'm not even saying that getting to that point where you can do it on unstable surface is going to do anything for you. It's not what I'm saying at all. Um, mm-hmm. quite the opposite. Um, but we, we tend to throw, uh, throw them into these really absurd protocols, um, in a pretty baseless, uh, pretty baseless way with, very little reason other than the fact that it looks, looks sexy and cool. And, um, we think that it's, it, it keeps us valuable as coaches when it really doesn't at all. Yeah. hundred percent. So let's maybe discuss like what, what instability actually is in the, like not an unstable service, but if somebody does have instability in a joint per se, um, training on an unstable surface is, is, not going to necessarily help right like we we want to like you say we need to be able to create tension create more neural drive to stabilize to create strength around the joint and 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 then in turn create more stability um so can we maybe just quickly talk on that and why i guess why how normal strength training is going to be our best approach to improve our stability yeah um well, I mean, we, we have to think about how does, um, 
how how are joints fundamentally held together? Um, we have we have varying types of tissues that are all involved in a very uh, complex sequence and series of of motion. Um, and your your body in in performing various movements and exercises largely depends on on tension relationships across different parts. If you have, um, and this is kind of one of the ironic um, things, if you have a joint that has uh, a, an available range of, you know, like we'll just talk about a knee because knees are, are incredibly relevant in, in the off-road sport. Um, and you've got the ability for extension and flexion to occur inside of that, that joint. And you train that joint in a way that you're utilizing just a, a little bit of the available range inside of it. And you're not creating any meaningful load or you're not applying any meaningful load that allows tissue to generate and grow, which is going to obviously more tissue is going to be better. Um, if you are not doing those things, then you're going to have a much more compromised and a much more vulnerable joint. Um, it isn't, you know, it, it, I'm trying to think of a, a motocross related analogy of sorts, but like if you just continually jump the, the 20 footer and then over and over and over and over again, and you build your bike to be able to, to withstand a landing on your, on your 20 foot table in your backyard. And then all of a sudden you decide you're going to huck an Axel Hodges and you're going to throw it, you know, however far, and you're on the same bike that was built to go on your 20 footer in the backyard, you're going to be eating the ground for lunch. Um, and your stuff's going to get blown apart real quick. And that's what we see happens. So you have athletes that aren't exposed to meaningful loads, meaningful tension and, and, and uh, meaningful ranges of motion where we're, oh, where we have ranges available and we haven't applied loads to that range entirely. And what you do is you, you create all of this available room for injury to happen where there was no, uh, no ability to create tension in the, in the muscles and, and the rest of the connective tissue that, that needed to be able to, um, to hold tension well and keep the joints stable. So for knees, I think knees are, are a great example. Uh, you know, historically it was always, you know, even like, oh, I'm not going to squat past parallel because I don't, I, you know, I don't want to hurt my knees. I think you've probably hopped on that one a few different times and, and blown that apart. I, I see you squatting with, um, you know, max ankle dorsiflexion and, and, and max, uh, knee flexion every single time that I see you, um, and have your clients doing those same things. I've watched you, you know, handling Stu Baylor's knee rehab and, or, and, mostly rehab, but just strength work, nothing fancy about it really is yeah. just the basics. Um, and for those of you that have not paid attention to what Ben has done with Stu, um, he has done an outstanding job in bringing him back and do not think for a second that, um, that the work that he's done has not been incredibly impactful in Stu's success for the remainder of the year. And I think that that's only going to continue. So, um, very cool to watch and see somebody apply very basic strength principles to preparing the body appropriately and, and see it pay off. So, um, anyways, kudos to you, but as far as, uh, as far as knees go, man, um, you know, when we, when we combine the, the attention given to unstable surface conditions, that fundamentally means lighter loads 
and also means shortened ranges of motion. So if you put a kid on a BOSU ball and you make him do squats, he's going to stand on that BOSU ball and he's going to maybe move, um, we'll call it 30, 40%, maybe. And say he's, that's his whole squat protocol is he's on, he's dancing around on a BOSU ball and moving at 40%. What happens when he actually receives some meaningful force from gravity, like you're going to interact with on a motorcycle that takes that knee from that 40 and brings him down to where he actually uh, has available range and absolutely no development in that range. That joint is obliterated. And that's what we see happen time and time and time again. And then what, we, what happens is the athlete goes in, gets surgery. They do their PT, maybe depending on how motivated they are, they finish their PT, they get released, they hop on a bicycle, and then they sit in a cyclical pattern with a partial range of motion on a bicycle for an extended period of time, and then apply absolutely no loading to that joint to actually uh, regenerate new tissue and muscle growth to, uh, to protect it and make it more resilient and more enduring. Um, and then you start the same cycle over and over and over again. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, hopefully that, I, does that answer the question? Yeah, it does, man. It does for sure. Like, um, I, I think you're, t you're totally right. Like that's what we see so often is cycling and then people, if, even if they are strength training there, perhaps it's not, even giving them the the benefits that they actually need because they've been told by someone don't let your knees go over your toes or don't squat past 90 like you just said and like we know when that happens when we get full flexion in the knee yeah it loads the knee more which like you just said is going to encourage it to grow stronger which if we're doing strength training to get stronger that's a good thing like we we want that yeah. to happen so unfortunately like you say there's so many myths out there that hold people back um and it's it really, it's not rocket science. Like it's, it's pretty basic at the end of the day. It is, it's, it's basic and it is basic science. And the problem is you have to ignore the science to affirm the status quo of what exists in the, uh, in, in the strength and conditioning side of motocross racing. Um, I, I read a quote from, from Alden once that said, uh, I mean, it was in, in, kind of along the same lines of what we were talking about earlier where um, he had said, you know, he likes cycling for his guys, um, not just because it mimics the fact that it has two wheels and, and handlebars. Um, I mean, my dog has four legs and so does a cow, but I'm not going to eat my dog. Um, it, it, he said it like, likes the fact that it's, it's easy on the knees everything else is just so, so hard on the knees. And he said, swimming would be easier on the knees, but you don't want them to have soft skin. You don't want their hands to be soft because they don't, you don't want their hands to blister. So sw swimming apparently is a close second to, to cycling. Um, and what, what you end up doing is you, you take an athlete with uh, a, a vulnerable joint. And I think I'm just going to like, I'm going to call it how it is. Um, there seems to be a lot of blown up knees in that training camp. hundred percent. And it's been that way for years and years and years. At some point, someone needs to say, is this a symptom of the sport or are we just doing something wrong? And I think that if people would just use their brains and think critically a little bit, they would maybe recognize that there is a common denominator 
and maybe that our sport is not should not be as susceptible to uh, traumatic knee injury as it is currently. It's 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 pretty ridiculous uh, the rate at which um, knee injuries occur. You look at something that has a sport that has a really aggressive high uh, or aggressive rate of change of direction. You look at rugby. You look at at high level football, um, World Cup soccer. Uh, you do not see that. It, if you were to actually look at the relationship of injuries and the types of injuries that they are, that there are sure there are, obviously there's going to be knee injuries and ankle injuries and things like that um, in all of them. But when you actually look at the rate of like season ending injuries um, in, in our sport, it is disproportionately skewed towards knees and shoulders. Um, and that's problematic for sure. Um, so you get a guy and you, you, you take their knee fresh out of surgery. They ride a bike a lot in rehab to begin to restore some range of motion. And then think about this. They're fresh out of surgery. One of the first restrictions that they're restricted exercises that they're given is the ability to pedal in a cyclical motion. And then you take that same range and you prescribe that as their primary, primary, primary modality of training to move them forward in their career. Makes no sense. It doesn't, no, not at all. At it doesn't all. make any sense to you and I, but sadly there's there's people out there, like you and I both know, there's people out there that that's, that is how they prescribe a program, right? Yeah, and, and I think if what you understand is cycling and that's how, that's the language you can speak, um, you know, that's where you feel confident, you're gonna, you're gonna shell out that work. But I mean, it goes without saying that if, uh, if you're fresh off of a knee surgery and your coach goes and tells you to ride 700 miles on a road bicycle, um, there's a really good chance that that, that coach doesn't actually have your best interest in mind and really genuinely, um, is dangerous and doesn't know what they're doing at all. Um, so yeah, man, uh, the, the knee joint specifically needs to be exposed in our sport. Um, I don't get how anyone can ride a motorcycle for more than a few minutes and not understand this needs to be exposed repeatedly to heavy loads and a lot of tension. Yeah. That's absolute and, and full ranges of motion that is absolutely critical for the durability of that joint, your ability to sustain any meaningful time in the sport. You have to build um, really resilient connective tissue. And the only way you're going to do that is by applying loads all the way through ranges of motion. Yeah. hundred percent. You're exactly right, man. Like you look at football and sure there's some, there's some knee injuries, but if you, there's, there's 40 people on the field at once. Um, so like it's, it's a weekly thing we see like weekly, some, uh, uh, this is at a pro level. I'll blow my knee. So how many people are have, is it happening that we don't hear about at a, at perhaps a local level or a amateur level, I suppose. Um, but we look at what, what does a footballers, I'm not going to say that they're all their trainings, I guess, perfect, but they definitely, there's no doubt they spend a shitload more time in the gym working on totally. strength than we see the moto dudes who are just, again, trying to replicate Lance Armstrong's cycling routine they spend a ton of time cycling so you kind of you start to join the dots and we sort of see that like i said there's a pattern there 
So is it, do we just say, oh, it comes with the sport or should we address the problem? Try and fix it? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're like one of the only sports that, uh, for some reason has an entire retail market dedicated to, uh, bracing a joint that shouldn't need to be braced in the way that it is. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm an, I'm an anti knee brace guy, but why like to even get into the sport, do we, is the first thing that we do is we apply an external piece of protective equipment to keep a joint from being able to do what it should be able to do on its own or what it should be able to protect on its own with the musculature and connective tissue that's associated with the joint that every other sport on the planet has the ability to sustain in a lot of ways, more compromising forces and changes of direction than we see on the bike. But yeah, it's just like, boom, knee braces, you need it. Like people are making a killing off of it, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> but then that in itself, man, it gives, it gives people a false sense of security too. They're like, oh, it's cool. I've got my knee braces on. I'm, I'm sweet. My, my totally. knees are good. I don't need you know, and, and the, applica- the, ap- the application of this in, in the strength world, right, is the person who goes to pick something up off the ground that's maybe more than, you know, a, 100 kilos. And the first thing they do is they grab their nylon belts and strap it on. And they're like, cool, I'm good. Now my back is safe, right? You're like, no, man, you're going to wreck your stuff if you do this uh, not safely anyways. If you yeah. don't breathe and brace and actually do phys- – physically what your body is meant to do and create stability and tension in the right areas doing this with that belt isn't good isn't going to make a difference same thing applies on the motorcycle if you are in a position where that joint is not capable of receiving the type of load or force that's going to be placed upon it it's going the brace isn't going to do what you think the brace is going to do your joint's already screwed if it's not strong enough, which is why you see guys blow knees out one time, go back to putting their knee braces on, do a piss poor job of their rehab and their strength program is non-existent afterwards. They've been riding a bicycle in a circle, put their knee braces back on, blow another one out, rinse, repeat, same thing over and over and over again. And for, for, you know, if I was to dedicate myself like exclusively to running, like only run, I could become a pretty damn good runner. I think if I was to be a bowler and I was to just exclusively, you know, take my physical abilities aside and just exclusively dedicate myself to bowling, be, a, be pretty dang good at bowling for how much time that motocross guys spend in the saddle of a road bike. They're not even very good cyclists. And so when you try and train them like cyclists and they don't actually develop any of the real physical qualities that a high level cyclist would develop because they're not really getting fully trained the way that a cyclist would get trained. Their protocol is like a, it's, it's a fraction of that. When they're not even getting trained that way, you're not even getting the benefit of developing the physiology of a, of a cyclist. You're like a, a recreational bike rider from your house down to your neighborhood cafe. That's, really what you're developing. Um, so it's, it's troubling to me that even with a, with, with a single modality being fixed, um, we're still not even seeing, I don't need, I, I don't see motocross athletes develop physically the way that I see high level cyclists develop. Um, and that should be the case with how much time they spend on the bike. Yeah, I would agree, man, for sure.
I guess it's probably like, we're not saying don't cycle, but if that's your single modality of training, then there's going to be some serious gaps in your program and, and your physical preparation, right? If, if you want to be a cyclist, I mean, even, I think even the, the smart cyclists obviously understand that, that they need to strength train. Um, yeah. they, they all do yeah. the, the, the good ones do. Um, if you want to be a motocross racer, you're not a cyclist. And just because a bicycle has two wheels does not mean that it is the right modality for you to utilize, to prepare for the sport. If you, cause even if you want to be a cyclist, you don't need to just ride a bicycle. A good cyclist is not going to just ride a bicycle period. I mean, we have, we have in here, um, a couple professional cyclists, some from cross country mountain bike to enduro and downhill and BMX. Um, and especially like, man, the, the way I see these cross country guys train when, when they start strength training, the progress that they make on the bike is mm -hmm. unreal. And I think right now what, what's discouraging is you see guys opt to train this way in the sport of motocross and it's because they haven't actually gotten to taste and see how good it can be on the other side yeah. and how much better they can move, how much better they can perform, how much more they can endure, how much more enduring they'll be um, from injury. There are so many benefits that they're not getting to see, but because the guys at the top are obviously performing one way, everybody's kind of missing out. Um, so yeah, the cyclists that, that even are just like, dude, I'm going to spend, you know, right now it's, it's winter here and all of our guys that are cyclists, instead of them skipping town to just go be on the bike, um, they're staying here to keep training and they're going to go over the hill into California for one to two days a week to get to be on the bike. But the rest of the time they're going to, they're going to train in the gym and, and, and build some good muscle. Yeah. Awesome. So let's maybe talk about but we've kind of we've kind of driven at home but why, why cycling isn't the best um modality especially standalone like we've kind of covered that but i guess the, the big thing i hear from people is but i've got to train my muscular endurance like you know i've got to pedal for three hours so i can ride my dirt bike for three hours um whereas like you and i know that strength is essentially the foundational quality of muscular endurance the the, I guess the way I look at it, the bikes training the engine or the heart and the lungs, whereas the gym works training the strength. So, um, how, why, why is cycling perhaps not the best? I guess it's it's not the most efficient route to go down if we want to build improve our muscular endurance. Yeah, I think there's a there's a, a misconception that there's a a one to one correlation. Um, and I think a lot of this births out of, um, uh, the faulty understanding of energy systems and, and how, um, how the body actually does what it does for certain periods of time. I think there's this assumption that there's a one-to-one -one correlation between, um, you know, if you want to be able to go for three hours on a motorcycle, you need to, you need to train in that particular time domain. Um, the body just doesn't work that way. It's, it's a systems of system of systems. That's far more complex 
Um, and the way that we can address those systems is far more nuanced than just um, a one-dimensional time domain. I think we could probably do a, a whole episode on um, uh, on energy systems and um, and the the misconceptions of what's happening or what's occurring physiologically in different uh, in different times and under different intensities within those times. I think the the biggest more so than that um, for cycling is. I hear more of, I think there's guys like, okay, I need to, you know, I, I need my steady, low intensity, whatever, build the base. Um, you hear that. I think what I hear more than that is um, this is zero impact. It's good for my joints. And it mimics the, the patterns of the, of the motorcycle. Um, and I think the, if the, if somebody wants a reason, like I'm, I'm okay with the person that wants to go ride their bike for three hours and, and make that as a part of their, a, a part of what they do. I don't have a qualm with that, but it's when somebody does that at the expense of understanding the underlying consequences of having your body move in those patterns for extended periods of time and that in and of itself being the only thing that you're really doing to prepare. So the, the, if you need a reason to, or if there, if there's one red flag as to why you should not cycle as the primary modality, as the means to uh, train yourself for off-road racing or motocross racing, it is because a partial range of motion in a cyclical pattern is nothing like riding a motorcycle. Riding a motorcycle is not a cyclical sport in yeah. any way, shape or form. Even when you're training, and this will be a good energy systems conversation, a good piece for us to circle back to. And I think we should, we should like I said, do a full episode on this. Um, even if you are on the bike for three hours and you're moving like this, your hip mechanically is doing the same thing your knee mechanically is doing the same thing for the entire three hour duration you ride a motorcycle for 10 minutes and you are creating more complex contraction in 10 minutes on your body inside of the body than you will in a lifetime on a bicycle i i mean that in a in 10 minutes on a dirt bike you will you will contract more muscles in more ways and more patterns with more tension than you will in your entire career pedaling a bicycle. And that leaves you grossly underprepared for what actually happens on the bike. And so when you look at the system and you say, oh, well, I need my, you know, I need my, uh, I need my, my cardio to increase because my, my cardiovascular endurance is the, is the main piece here. Well, what happens when you come out the start, like your heart rate's already blown. Like we don't even need to talk about what's actually going on with oxygen and utilization and everything else, your heart rate's blown. Um, your muscles are constricted really, really, really tight. You fly into a whoop section. And now all of a sudden you've got all of these contractions occurring that your heart is trying to pump through and you're no longer in any type of relaxed cyclical pattern in the knee and hip like you were before. 
anything that you thought you did on a bicycle pedaling for three hours in a smooth cyclical pattern with no tension in the muscle whatsoever is gone. Mm. What like truly it's a, it's a completely different, a completely different set of physiological parameters on the motorcycle with a variety of complex contractions coming at different times and different intensities and different durations across the same exact time domain. And you want to take that time domain full of complexity and boil it down into get in line, mate, like tuck in and let's just pedal. It, 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 so even if the argument is this translates well, and I'm going to use some a translational argument to make, to justify why we do it. It simply does not. There's nothing similar in that regard at all. And so it's like, I'm, and I'm not saying don't ride the bike, ride the bike by all means, but lift some heavy stuff too. You damn sure better be, better be fixing to pick some heavy stuff up (laughs) because the first time that you fall out of the air from more than two feet on your motorcycle, still attached to the bike, not even talking about crashing, still attached to the bike. You, You, your body has to be prepared to do far more than simply sit in a tucked position, um, with a tiny bit of, uh, of flexion in the spine and the shoulders protracted and your neck cranked like this breathing in a steady state you need you need to be prepared for more than just that definitely man yeah i love it um maybe we could touch on why why do you think the, the rowing is a better modality Give, I guess touch on some of the reasons why it perhaps gives us some better adaptations than just cycling too. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a big fan of, I mean, I've got, I don't even know how many concept two rowers and assault rowers and assault bikes. And um, I, I like the rower more so than putting somebody onto a, onto a stationary um, onto a stationary, like bicycle trainer um, for a variety of reasons. One, the amount of money that I see people spend on their road bike kits to be able to train is literally, is probably uh, a year's worth of training, a year's worth of gym membership, maybe a couple months of food, as well as a concept two rower, like just for the, to just get into um, the cycling world. And we know how motorcycle guys are. We like cool stuff. So you nobody's out there trying to just go get the, the aluminum frame. Uh, you know, everyone needs the Dura Ace full carbon. It's, it's gotta be prime. Uh, like you're going to go race the tour, even though you're, you know, you're not. So, um, from the, a practical standpoint, I like it for my athletes because it's affordable and you can get started relatively, you know, quickly. Um, I also like the, uh, I, I like the physical nature of, um, of rowing as an actual sport, as a modality. There's actually a lot of kind of funny, a lot of the unstable surface literature, um, the research that's been done, which is not a lot, um, but a lot of it has involved rowing as a sport because that people say, well, the contact point with the oar in the water is unstable and the boat is unstable in the water. So you've got all of this instability everywhere. Dude, these guys are just hinging machines. 
and yes. they have the ability to create a ton of abdominal pressure and they have massive amounts of posterior endurance and they can keep pulling all day long. Yeah. Um, and they create that strength and that endurance through good tension and the ability to have endurance through stability and tension, primarily um, abdominal stability. So um, I like the rower for the fact that it teaches the breathing and bracing mechanics um, a whole lot better and forces you to breathe through tension in a way that you don't do when you're just a loose limp noodle sitting on a, on a bicycle racing your buddies on Swift. Mm -hmm. um, when, when you're on the rower, you have to go back through a sequence every single time of creating tension, using your breathing and your abdominal pressure to create stability pulling through a full range. And then it has a one-to-one -one work rest ratio where you pull and work, you're smooth and you return and you're, re you're resting at that point. And I think that that contraction and rest cycle is, um, is much closer to even the modality of, uh, of racing a motorcycle than, than anything else. Um, it involves the legs and the upper body in a way that we don't see on a bicycle. Um, you need to have strong legs. You've got to have a strong back. You've got to have strong shoulders, strong chest, strong arms. If you want to be able to ride the motorcycle well, um, and don't think just because we look at guys that are at the top of the sport and they don't look that way, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't, uh, improve their musculature in those areas. So, um, I like the fact that it, it, it works more of those muscle groups. Um, and I also like the ability to, work a more, um, how would I put this? Um, there, and even with like, with our work with Moxie and there's plenty of times where we use bicycles for, for steady step tests, five, one fives, whatever it may be. We, we do it and use it. I'm not saying it's not good, but for the motocross athlete, I like the ability to program, um, really effective, well-structured interval work on the rower that applies tension in ways that you don't get on the bicycle. Um, that to me is, I mean, those are all pieces that I think make it, um, I'm not going to say a superior, um, a superior option, but a much better option to put into your, uh, your bag of tricks for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Also get a lot more knee flexion on the rower than the, the cycle. That's Dude, sure. full, Damn sure. full, full range in the knee. Um, I mean like the shorter sprint stuff, right. It's just like much more yeah. the, the positional hinge. Um, and anybody that follows you knows that, you know, you talk a lot about the hinge pattern, the importance of being able to sit into that position on the motorcycle and not be tucked in the hips and trying to squeeze the bike with the knees, with your pelvis pushed forward and your shoulders protracted. Um, so you, the, the knee flexion is big. Um, but I think the combination of being able to access the full range in the ankles and knees, as well as create a very strong, um, in a very strong hinge that reinforces good posterior tension in the, you know, in the glutes and in the hamstrings and not just allowing someone to aggressively load the quads over and over and over again. Um, I think those are, those are all big key pieces for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I guess that's probably something that we haven't even touched on really, but just that the body awareness that comes and the motor control that comes from strength training is of and in itself is a, is a massive benefit that we can gain. That's going to carry over to how we, we move on the dirt bike. Right. Totally. Um, I mean, I can't even, 
tell you how many times I've been, uh, I've been on the bike and I, and I'm able to think through making very small positional changes, um, to create tension or, um, relaxation in places where if you are not training those muscles, you're not going to feel, or you're not going to know, you're just going to deal with lower back pump and arm pump and everything your, uh, your whole life. So, um, yeah, the, and for a, for a smart rider to be able to realize how much more, um, enduring they can become in very challenging conditions with a lot of tension on the motorcycle, just by learning how, uh, as simple as, is learning the cueing of the deadlift and being able to create tension in the right places and rigidity in the right places while still allowing you to breathe appropriately and position yourself well to, um, to get an adequate amount of air. That's a, a, another tremendous benefit that I think a lot of people probably miss. Yeah, for sure, man. I think that's probably, I think most people, they don't, I, I guess they're perhaps not aware of how much load we are being exposed to on the bike. Like you meant touched on it before, but when you've got, when you think about velocity, the speed we're traveling at and the weight of the bike plus our body, it's close to 200 kilos at times. And then we're hitting something at 60, 70, 80 K an hour. Like that amount of force is massive. It's 500 times more than you're ever going to put down on a pedal climbing up a hill. Um, and 500 times more than doing a squat on a BOSU ball with a little dumbbell or whatever, it, whatever it looks like. So, we are endurance athletes, but we're very different to your average endurance athlete. So it's such an integral part that we expose ourselves to some load like that. Yeah, I think the I think the the easiest way um, to communicate it to somebody who wants to categorize motocross or off road racing as an endurance sport just based on the time domain by itself. Mm. Um, that fundamentally neglects the complexity of what's actually occurring physiologically inside of an athlete on the motorcycle at the same time. And the, the shift that needs to happen is we need to quit thinking about ourselves as endurance athletes. And when I say endurance athletes, I mean, cyclical single modality, endurance athletes, running, biking, swimming, we're not in that camp. We are much closer to a world cup soccer player on the pitch and being able to handle the intensity of, of a, a full, uh, a full football game or a rugby player. Um, I think, uh, I've got some, some folks that friends that are big in the rugby community and they train, um, fairly high level rugby organizations. And I see so much similarity between the data that I pull off of motocross athletes in real time in the sport, whether that's like, that's, that's moxie data, um, or, uh, testing them in the gym as well. So much similarity to what, what they talk about pulling off of, uh, a rugby player in the intensity of that game. So as far as just the, um, the need to be enduring the rate of the, the contraction rate, um, the force that's, that's involved, there's, there's much more similarity there than there is riding the bicycle. And I think that our entire sport would change, um, for the better. It would be a safer sport for everybody. It would um, be a more enjoyable sport because people would be would be less hurt. They would be able to um, participate longer 
they'd be able to ride more aggressively longer into their lives and into their careers. Um, I think they would, the whole sport would change in a very positive direction if we would get out of the mindset of we need to follow um, a single modality and train with a, with a cyclical movement pattern. That's just not a good representation of what, what we really do. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, man. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, so I'm mindful of your time. We're getting on a bit now, but you, you've kind of touched on it briefly there, the, the moxie thing. Do you want to maybe just, I know we definitely want to come back and do another whole episode and we could go down a lot of rabbit holes with that one with the energy systems thing, but maybe just touch on what the moxie allows you to do. And I know you, I saw in your story the, a couple of weeks ago, you're at the track with one of yours, I think Superbike racer or something like that, where you were taking data from him while he's out on the track to see exactly what's going on in his body. So maybe just quickly touch on that and just share with the listeners what that, this cool little thing allows you to do. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think the, uh, the way that some folks would probably understand it is in its, in its simplest form, um, you're, we're, we're measuring oxygen in, inside of, uh, inside of the working muscle in real time. And a lot of folks are probably familiar maybe in the moto community, because there was, there were a few years there where, um, Alden and some other guys were, were really big on the pulse oximeter, the, the Massimo, um, pulse ox that you just, you put on the end of your finger. Um, that is a, uh, that's a device that measures, um, arterial oxygen saturation. So, um, how much, how much oxygen is inside of, of blood in the artery. Um, and then a Moxie device, I have one just sitting right here actually is, uh, a NEARS device. And what NEARS does is, uh, it measures venous oxygen saturation. So in a, in a pulse oximeter, you may see deviation from, you know, a hundred to 97. Um, as far as that actual value, we're looking at values in venous blood or, uh, venous oxygen saturation from, you know, 70, 75% all the way down to zero. Um, so we are and not to, not to quote, uh, Evan too extensively, because if we do another episode, we will end up doing that quite a bit. Um, Evan is a, is a friend of mine and for listeners, I think, uh, a friend of Ben's as well at this point, who is kind of a, a an up and coming thought leader in in the exercise physiology world. Um, very smart young man who's doing a lot of great research right now with a lot of great technology um, and kind of breaking um, long standing myths in the sports performance world. But um, we're watching, or he he says, you know, the the body speaks to two languages, energetics and tension. Um, it doesn't really know a whole lot more than that. So in all the complexity that's going on can boil down to, to the energetics question and the, and the, uh, the question of tension and what we do with that. So I had a, I was at a, uh, at a Moto America, um, race. I, I had the Moxie monitor on a rider while he was on the track. And what we're doing is we're, um, we're, we're taking that data off of him. It's, it's shining a little light into the muscle, uh, refracting that light and then telling us how much oxygen is in, is in the muscle at what time. And what that tells us is, um, we can then actually, we can, we can extrapolate all kinds of things from that. Uh, the effectiveness of, of the heart's ability to deliver 
fresh oxygenated blood to a working muscle, uh, the muscle's ability to uh, handle that blood and, and what kind of contraction is occurring, your ability to offload carbon dioxide as a, as a waste product. And we can begin to identify what kind of limitations an athlete will have and then address that limitation based on the data that they present in real time in their sport. So if you want to do, you know, you talk about sport specific training, then instead of putting a pair of handlebars on a, on a spring and making a kid do pushups, um, we can identify what's actually limiting him from being able to perform better. Does he have a delivery limitation of oxygen? Does he have an actual respiratory limitation? Um, there's a variety of different things that, that we may identify, but um, the ability to identify if somebody is limited by oxygen supply or oxygen utilization is um, long-standing technology. Nears, Nears Tech has been around for a really long time, but it's now, um, I think, starting to grow in a in a very small pool of uh, the strength and con- the strength conditioning community, where um, normal normal coaches like myself and and you and others have access to this kind of technology instead of it being in a lab um, at a university and costing tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars at times in the past to, you know, a couple thousand bucks. And you can, you can get a lot of insight on what's going on with an athlete. Yeah, it's awesome, man. It's, it's definitely a valuable tool. I haven't got mine yet. I'm waiting for it to show up, but I can't wait to actually get in and, and ah, did you get one? Divulge a bit of the data. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. Your, uh, your athletes will be extremely spoiled. Um, by that. So, yeah, I know, like, I mean, I think a practical, you know, a practical step for people to, to realize is like, man, we're in, we really should do, especially absolutely now we need to do a whole episode on this, but um, you know, if, if you're a, if if we were to find out just by observing this kind of data um, that an athlete was, uh, was limited by their ability to utilize oxygen then that person probably needs to be involved in, in more um, hit style protocols where they have more aggressive interval structures. If somebody is more delivery limited where they're not, uh, they're not transporting fresh oxygen into a working muscle effectively, then longer slow endurance training might be uh, the right call for that kind of person as well. So um, to bring that full circle, you know, back to the bike is, uh, in an untrained population, a largely untrained population, any training is better than no training, but you can do, um, you know, you can, you can train a particular way or a particular system for your entire life and make virtually no improvement because you're not addressing the right systems that need to be addressed. And that's what we are, uh, you know, that's what we're really trying to tackle with, with utilizing Nears tech and, um, groups like Moxie Monitor, bringing them into into our training organizations to try and become more informed about the needs of the athlete. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what I'm so excited about with it, man, is like that ability to really zero in on the specific limitation for the person because like you and I both know every, no, no two people are the same. So this little cool little thing gives us the ability to really pinpoint what each athlete really needs to work on and really yeah. hone in their training. And I mean, then the, the ability to give confidence, I mean, we're, we're not guessing mm. and, and then we're able to observe in, in real time, you know, what's going on inside of, uh, of the athlete. 
and for you know you're hooked up to a you know a power meter and a and a chest strap and whatever else you are when you're just out on a bicycle your your coach is still just doing their best guess um on what it is that you need to improve and when the metrics for improvement aren't really based on your physiology they're based on cycling performance metrics you're not going to be improving the things within your physiology that need to be improved and so whether it's you know you're watching a single variable like a heart rate or even you know the, it's kind of hokey but like just using something like uh you know like a massimo to measure arterial oxygen saturation like i remember seeing all the ads pop up of zach being like i like knowing what's going on all the time it's like you know your you know your arterial oxygen saturation doesn't tell you jack like how is it how is it informing what you're actually doing in your training protocol same thing goes with you know we can again we should do an episode on vo2 talk about some of that stuff but like you get this one number mm. how is it informing what's actually going to happen with your training how is it going to shape and drive um you know the decisions that you're making to actually produce the change that you need to produce in order to improve that doesn't really happen um so when we can at least break through some of those pieces um you know or and the questions that are underlying the deeper physiology of of what's happening inside the body um then then we can actually start to make meaningful prescriptions for exercise and how somebody can improve yeah yeah which is cool man because like you say like something's better than nothing but you and i both know there's a lot of people out there that aren't afraid to do the work like they they putting in the work with their training so if if they're willing to do the work if they can really like dial that in then the gains are going to be massive right oh and like almost instantaneous um in in the training sense like it's not a lifetime of i mean you can you can make very 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 subtle changes if they're well informed changes and see it pay off very quickly um yeah. that's i mean that's one of the beautiful things of of smart training and why strength training is so great is and even strength training with moxie and it's how we should actually that'd be a, a great structure for another episode is is to do um you know some endurance application of moxie but then also a, um some strength application with moxie and how we can derive our strength training protocols from from testing uh muscle oxygen saturation as well is you know we can we can progress in athlete and like you I've seen you say several times like strength is never a weakness and if we can progress an athlete's strength um in a meaningful way with relatively little effort and relatively little time the payoff is going to be enormous it doesn't require going out and getting a $7000 roadie and a bunch of spandex and a power monitor and um you know uh, and a membership to trainer road like it doesn't take that sometimes it just takes a little bit of hard work on the basics and an informed and well guided protocol to get you through those things and improve the areas that are lowest hanging and easiest to improve yeah yeah i love it man so for the people that are like nearby you cuz that's actually something you do in house right you do the moxy testing so you can actually yeah. like, put them through an assessment to tell them like what their limitations are specifically So yeah so we do um I mean we we do a variety of of physiological testing here um we do it for pretty much all new clients but it varies obviously in degree whether we're using um Moxie or a Panoe system um for different metabolic testing we 
we do all of that stuff here in house. So if you're in, you know, Southern California or Northern California or Utah, Oregon, Washington, um, anything around that area, Arizona, wherever, um, more than, more than happy to have you pop up and, and we'll play around and, and get some real meaningful, actionable data. That's not just like, a you know, um, uh, Hey, you went and got your, your VO2 tested one time. Here's a number. Congratulations. Um, we can, we can actually, after, you know, one, one or two days of testing, have some really meaningful prescriptions on how to, how to move an athlete forward. Um, and it's not, and also like, even if you don't have these tools, it's not to say that coaches that don't have access to these tools or the resources for these tools, that they are, um, not able to make solid decisions for their training. It, you, it just, in a lot of ways, re-solidifies or it can re-solidify or it can change your assumptions. But a lot of times it can reinforce what maybe you already thought was the case based on utilizing other forms of testing, like speed preservation testing, um, you know, different step testing. You can, you can find with time a fair amount of correlation between what the Moxie shows you and what you see in, in non, uh, non-NEARS related testing. Yeah. 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 You're, I think that's, it's definitely changed. I've had to like, I guess, reframe some of the, I guess, the analogies I use, but it's just, it's kind of the same thing. It just changes the, I guess, the terminology a little bit, but it does, it gives you, like you say, it gives you confidence in perhaps what you're already doing, knowing that you're going the right way. Yeah. And I think probably one of the, one of the better applications um, uh, is that, you don't have to, by taking the guesswork out, you're also removing a lot of the unnecessary um, physical stress, physiological stress placed onto an athlete that they simply don't need that won't be productive. Um, and I know you've probably, you've probably heard this uh, addressed in different times when talking about like hypertrophy work. You know, if you're not creating the right amount of mechanical tension in a muscle to produce necessary change in that muscle and you've done, you know, four sets of 10 for an entire year in something like a, a back squat. And you weren't actually going to be, um, you weren't going to be adequately deoxygenated in a sense, desaturated in that muscle until maybe 14 or 15 reps at a set percentage of your squat, you created a, bunch of unnecessary stress on connective tissue without producing any meaningful change. So you were doing the right exercises, but the volume and the weight load or whatever it may be, the prescription may be off um, by just a hair and over a whole year, that's actually a whole lot of wear and tear on the body that wasn't doing the right thing for you. Yeah. Which is why we should have another conversation on auto regulation as well. <laughs> yeah, I think that's <laughs> There's definitely scope for another episode without a doubt. We could go, go into some, some depth there for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know what time you've got there. I've got, uh, I actually am, uh, even though we are a larger training organization, I do pride myself on the fact I still coach every day. <laughs> so I, uh, I need to coach in uh, 25 minutes. So um, I'm going to hop off so I can go get prepped and ready for that session. Yeah. That's cool, man. I appreciate your oddly, time. Oddly enough, it is a uh, it is a post-operative 
uh, knee uh, client who uh, ACL, MCL, meniscus uh, going five miles an hour, uh, leg out in a corner and blown me. So (laughs) yeah, we're going to go get to work. He's come to the right man. Yeah, he's doing great. Yeah, I'll I'll uh I'll actually send you. I'm, I'll pop off. I'll send you some videos of of uh where he's at and what he's doing. It's pretty pretty badass. Yeah, awesome. That's cool, man. Well, yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, no uh, I think. Well, maybe. Yeah, I guess to just kind of close it out. Um, that uh one there i'm gonna give i'm gonna send ben some links on some different uh different studies and and different papers that i think are are uh very meaningful and and very helpful um people need to understand you you need resistance to create change and that's what we're trying to do with training in its simplest form and it is a waste of our time to do the same exercise with a weight that doesn't promote any type of meaningful physical characteristics that we're actually trying to achieve or create instability where we're not able to actually perform the exercise in a stable fashion itself. Um, so common sense is just, I, I just desperately encourage people to use, uh, use some common sense and tell you that lightweight by itself or lightweight on an unstable surface is not going to get you strong. It leads to less strength, Um, no matter the improvement that you think it's generating, it is not going to give you the meaningful change that you're looking for, for the long haul. So, um, please, please, please strong. I strongly encourage you to, um, hire a good quality strength coach. Even if you're here in the States, like Ben is in Australia, he is able to work with you. I, he didn't ask me for this plug, but I'm watching him do it all the time. Um, and he's a, he's a a wonderful dude to serve your guys's demographic in the off-road racing world. Um, and if, you know, if Regulus can be a resource to any of you as well, if you have questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm a pretty open book and we'll talk with anyone at any time for any length. So feel free to, uh, drop me a message, send me an email, um, anything you would like, and we'd love to help you begin a, uh, a strength journey that allows you to enjoy the sport for the rest of your life. Absolutely, man. Yeah, that's right. And there's plenty of good strength coaches out there that can teach you. And if anyone does want to train with someone face to face, because it is the best way to learn. Um, and you don't live near either of us, like, give us, shoot us a message. I can, like, we've both got a network of coaches that we know are legit that can teach you the, the ins and outs of how to train strength properly. So totally, I cannot tell you how many times I have had remote inquiries come in and then have just connected them with a solid practitioner in their area. Um, yeah. it's, uh, it's tremendously beneficial. And, um, yeah, I, I just, I, it's not even about, you know, uh, I don't, I don't want all the clients. I just <laughs> want to see people, uh, do the right thing. And I want to see coaches do the right thing. And I want to see athletes get to experience the right thing because it really is, um, truly better and, and life-changing to be able to um, train in a meaningful way and know that you're making changes that are actually going to help you for the long haul. Yeah, 100%, man. I love it. Thank you for your time. I'll let you go. I know you got a coach, so. Rocking, dude. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you to your listeners as well. Awesome, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Of course.